As growing climate activists, we often point towards politicians to listen, to meet our demands, but we may sometimes overlook the huge efforts behind execution and pushing these plans to the masses. Understanding both sides of the equation is critical in situations where action is needed, so how can we make these politicians understand us, and how can we also understand them? Today we introduce the concept of environmental economics and how this is necessary in our climate advocacy. Hello and welcome back to Season 2 of Sustainapod, a youth-led podcast for the youth and anyone passionate about issues related to sustainability in Asia. My name is Arwin, and this is a special episode for all the bigger minds out there, as we step outside of what we usually learn in economics class and combine the subject with social sustainability. Today, we have an incredibly inspiring guest with us, Angela Zhang. She is a sophomore at Harvard and has already been doing big things both at her community in college and the global community at Koi 16 and COP26. Um, can you maybe introduce yourself a little bit and how you came across this topic of like quantifying social costs and like how did you enter um, this climate advocacy space? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I noticed that like I had always been like trying to make sure that my individual impact was like mitigated. Um, and I think that's partially like a very like conservationist mindset, like immigrant um, parents, et cetera. Um, and also like coming from Houston, there's a lot of like floods and hurricanes and uh, there was like recently a power grid failure. And so I feel like the effects of climate change have been always like very visceral to me. And then going to school and I college, I d- decided to take a class on the economics of climate change specifically. Um, and I had no idea that this professor was like a really big like negotiator in the space. Um, and I just thought it'd be cool and I would count towards my economics degree. And so I decided to take it and then I've really pivoted into being involved in the green space ever since. Um, and I think that like my skill set with like economics would lead me to focus on things like the social cost of carbon and just like quantifying these impacts. Okay, so just like a little bit of background about like how we met and stuff. So we didn't meet at like the UN Climate Change Conference of Youth or COID-16 and Angela was hosting a keynote session titled Discounting Our Future. And Angela, for me, it was very like educational and informative session. And in my opinion, it was a topic that was not very talked about in the youth climate advocacy space. So I was very excited and intrigued to know that you as a young climate warrior yourself knew so much about this topic. Um, so me also, like, I, I, I'm not, I haven't studied an economics degree in university, but I have been like throughout high school, I was always studying economics for, so like, I would say like, I kind of know about economics for like the amount of time. Um, my school curricular had never actually like exposed us to think about like the economic impacts of, on the largest phenomenon in the, tw- of the 21st century. So how do you think like, now that you're in university studying economics, how do you think economists view the current issue of climate change? I think it's really interesting um, because I'm also taking an environmental science class um, about climate change debates. And so like the readings for both of the classes are very, very different. Like both of them use modeling, right? But one is about like econometrics and the other one is about like, um, like different statistical distributions to determine if something is like uh, statistically significant as a like, climate change is a cause. Um, and I think that there's like a criticism that can be very valid that sometimes economists seem a little bit divorced from the problem and that like 
we like technically like these mechanisms would be really really useful like a carbon tax or like a cap and trade policy or even just climate clubs um and, but no, these aren't being used so far and so like taking that into consideration whenever uh, people are advocating for policies is something that even people who were listening to my session at the conference on youth were discussing right like is it something that we should even try to gun for if it doesn't seem so politically viable so taking other elements into account and the other thing i'll say on that note is that um, it, while it does seem very clean and that like um, cap and trade policies might, for example, decrease the quantity of emissions, um, I think a lot of it still has to be informed by unclear science as to what the like right amount of emissions is, right? Because there's like a lag time of like, even if we cut carbon dioxide production now, like that might not affect us until like maybe 20 years down the road, right? So like thinking about mitigation strategies as well, um, all of those things are like, needed to be accounted for in the model and there are still things that need to be refined I think. So you did touch on like a lot of things during that uh, that whole thing where you talked about like cap and trade and also like that um, kind of quantifying the value for future generations and stuff. I do want to kind of touch on the second point for now first. Um, you did mention even in your keynote session that like oh like for each administration in the American pres presidency like the value the discounted value was different and so like I think in your presentation correct me if I'm wrong but like back in Obama's administration it was 51 US dollars per ton of carbon emitted and Trump went down to like eight US dollars per ton of carbon um do you want to kind of explain a little bit elaborate a little bit more on what this value means for I guess communities and for the economy as a whole so basically the social cost of carbon indicates how many dollars would it cost uh, to stop producing or like not produce that extra marginal ton of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Um, and so Trump was able to decrease that number significantly by changing the discount rate. So it discounted future, the impact it would have on future generations a lot more. And then it would also not account for global impacts and it would only focus on things that happen at home, right? Um, which makes a really significant impact when you think about how like oftentimes it's other like third world countries who are impacted the most. Um, and so putting that into combination, I think even it doesn't seem like very obvious. It, like it's a very abstract concept as to like, oh, like what does that actually mean for communities? But I think whenever you think of it in terms of policies, like for example, policies that push for more coal production, which is some of sometimes uh, some of his voter base, for example, uh, were then see, seemed more attractive because the costs of carbon dioxide went down, um, even though no, no, nothing that the coal plant did had actually changed. It was just the calculation of how how much we valued that extra ton of carbon dioxide that had differed. And so following along with this example of coal, um, which is like what I, personally what, what I think is like one of the industries that we need to phase out first, it seems like um, this production um, and the lack of accountability that comes in making sure that coal mines are regulated and cleaned, especially after they're finished being used, are all things that impact like communities and like the Appalachian who have like significantly higher rates of things like lung cancer um, and also a lack of sustainability moving forward whenever we transition away from coal, uh, what happens to these groups, right? And so I think that would be an example of how it could impact, but I'm sure because the social cost of carbon touches on basically every element of any climate policy, that there are just countless applications that we need to consider. All right, so um, let's kind of talk about cap and trade for a little bit and also like um, carbon tax as well, like the comparison between the two. 
as mechanisms for climate policies. So what is your opinion on like implementing either one? Um, obviously there are pros and cons for each one, but how, how can we implement these two better or more effectively? Yeah, so I'll first break it down into my thoughts on each individually and then talk about like what um, improved implementation might look like uh, following your question. And so I think the biggest thing is that like functionally in a perfect world, both of them would lead to the same outcome, right? Because you have the same numbers going in, you have the same circumstances, but I personally lean a little bit towards cap and trade versus carbon tax um, because one is that like this notion of like taxation is just like not very politically uh, supportive supported right um like nobody wants their money being taken from them even if for example this would be distributed later in a dividend uh, which is what i think some politicians in the united states were advocating for the other reason that i think uh, carbon taxes are a little bit more tenuous in my mind is that they rely on and having an accurate social cost of carbon uh, which is something i briefly touched on in my presentation uh, but i can elaborate on that here so what that means is uh, we have to set a number, right, for every carbon. So let's say like we need to tell these companies that are polluting, like, okay, so for every extra ton of carbon that you produce, uh, we will charge you an extra, you will be taxed an extra, like maybe $51, right? Um, but until we have a perfect number for what the social cost of carbon is, then we cannot actually determine how much it would actually decrease by, right? Uh, or like what the, the amount that they should decrease by is. Um, and this criticism is somewhat applicable to a cap and trade policy as well in that uh, we don't maybe always know what the right quantity of emissions should be. However, I think in the cap and trade policy, you can always overshoot, right? And you can like cut down more than you maybe you even need to um because i think being overly cautious is probably better than the status quo especially um, since we're hearing a lot of like alarmism in the community about like what's going to happen in the next 30 years um and so i think i i would honestly be happy if either of these policies were like strong strengthened right because uh, ultimately they are furthering the same goal and that would indicate that there is a level of like uh, activism and promotion within um, at least in my community so like the United States um, and then in terms of implementation I think the biggest thing is that they both policies need to be pretty global in order to have the most um, significant impact and that's not just because um, um, other countries also need to cut their emissions while that is true I think the bigger problem is that for countries that do it, um, a lot of uh, industry will often just move to a different country, which is known as leakage. And so that means that uh, these people are still emitting the same amount and you're not really penalizing them. So it just hurts an individual economy. And I think that that's just symbolic of this like sort of free rider effect that you get whenever you have a lot, all of these elements. Um, you really want everyone to commit in order for everyone to receive the benefits. If you want to know more, resources for cap and trade, carbon tax, and carbon leakage will be in the episode description below. I 100% agree. I know, like, comparing cap and trade and carbon taxation is fine, but as long as, like, you implement it properly where it has a global effect and so that there won't be any leakage, that, that is, I think that is very important. Because while I was in the, in COI 16, um, I heard a lot of people talking about carbon taxation and thinking that it would be effective if you implement it properly, but then they, there has been a lot of ideas on how to implement it properly, but none of them, like they don't talk about cap and trade as much as they talk about carbon tax, which I find quite concerning in a way because, you know, cap and trade in its essence, it's like, it's a quota on how much you can emit. And yeah, like you said, 
being overly cautious is much better than just like kind of conforming to the status quo and carbon tax is conforming to the status quo. So, but yeah, I think, I think a lot more discussion and conversation must be centered around cap and trade schemes. And I hope a lot of countries and economic developed countries would be able to kind of implement this more effectively. So let's go a little bit more on like taxation. Um, so the idea of kind of internalizing externalities such as carbon emissions from plastic pollution and stuff like that. Can you walk us through like the challenges of kind of inter internalizing these externalities? Yeah, I guess um, the main thing that I would point to whenever I'm considering like what this taxation would look like would be um, some of the tariff policies that the EU has implemented around um, making sure that carbon emissions are calculated. And so I think the first part is like thinking about um, what sort of emissions should even count in a product, right? Um, and so uh, whenever, like, I think one of the first things I learned in microeconomics was that there were like final goods, uh, which are goods like where all, everything has been like part, put into that good, right? So it's like an entire car. And then there are intermediate goods, for example, like a tire. Um, and so making sure that you can calculate all of these numbers uh, for each piece of that one car is incredibly difficult, um, especially since like we are so globalized now, right? And so there's a lot of lack of like accountability and transparency um, from some of these producers um, that make it so that even people who are well-intentioned and like want to display how much emissions they're creating or producing is, it's just difficult for them too. Um, and I think we need to have a lot more standardization on like what, the numbers do get counted um, and like for example if the tire is getting moved from one transport facility to another is that also part of the emissions footprint intuitively I would say yes but it, I mean it's not actually in part of the creation of that tire so I think there are people who would argue no especially like industry right and so I think that's something that's really unclear to me personally um, perhaps there has been a lot of research been done on been that has been done on it already that I'm not entirely aware of, but I think um, even if there is, there needs to be a lot more transparency to individual consumers who are trying to be more aware, um, because I do think that that is an, a recurring phenomenon, like we're looking for more sustainable products and people are generally like aware that this is like a problem, um, but until we have this sort of strong messaging um, or it's like especially like governmental regulation on like what that would look like, um, it, it becomes difficult for these companies to stand out or even just do the bare minimum. There's this whole thing on like polluter pays and contributor pays, like that type of principle. Um, I think it's talked a lot in economics as well. And like, what is your personal opinion on on like which one? I guess like this is the second debate. Yeah, yeah. Um, I personally think that in terms of capacity, it definitely seems like polluters should pay, um, since that would target like a lot of industries that are getting away with a lot of uh, pollution right now. Um, because I think that even though it maybe it seems unfair and that like they have to pay for everything when it's like not their fault that there's a demand, but when you think about it, like they're they have been lobbying for like more less restrictive policies on their pollution for so long that like I think that it is fine to be strict on them I do understand that there's like an element of like competition or like innovation that you want to maintain um, that becomes difficult whenever like new firms are entering these types of tech spaces especially since there's so much going on in like the clean energy space and clean technology um, but I don't think that that should be a reason why like mega conglomerates are, are able to get away with a lot of these like environmental violations right so like for example um 
I think I was reading about how Nestle was able to like uh, take water from like this part of California that was already like going through desertification and things like that right and so like it seems like it's not like Nestle doesn't have other water sources and if that's the case then like they're, they're actively making that choice to do so and so intuitively to me it seems like they should be the ones who have to compensate the people who are like now not able to have like a water supply right and so intuitively that seems to also be like principally applied to pollution right like Nestle could choose to like invest in like more cleaner like carbon capture or whatever technologies for like production plants and facilities but they're choosing not to and so they like they it is their choice about whether or not they want to right but like we should be, like influence that choice a little bit by not just making it like oh it's like free to pollute or like you can pay like a certain amount and pollute as much as you want like I think the choice needs to be framed a lot differently for these companies to start taking actions that are like far more than just like current greenwashing initiatives that I'm like pretty skeptical of yeah that's very great like I think you wrapped it up basically this this whole de debate on polluter pays versus contributor pays yeah um, I think that'll be end of the whole economics talk and I just want to kind of dive a little bit into about how like your development and your journey towards like climate advocacy and stuff so I guess well first of all like our podcast is kind of catered towards like younger students like high school students who are looking to transition to a sustainability career or uh, university students who want to like transition you know um, so are there any like useful resources that have helped you or has your uni actually helped you kind of dive into a little bit on like researching and learning a bit more about the yeah your topic of interest yeah I think that most universities have some sort of like center for the environment and ours does as well so there's a lot of really cool research opportunities that I was able to find through there um, and then also outside of that the just like the professors that I have are just amazing and uh, I totally uh, would recommend like taking like edX courses by them and just like online um, since I feel like there's been more access to that with like COVID and everything um, so that's definitely I think that that's one good way to go about it um, but usually if you want to contact contact like professor even if they don't go to your school um it's super easy to find their website online from whatever institution they are at and reach out to them or just pop either office hours um and I think that if it's a good fit then we they definitely would be open since I think especially during the summers there's a lot of opportunity to research outside of just the institution you're working at and be compensated for that labor right which I think is really important um and so academically I think there's that I think um, you mentioned it earlier, but like Yango was really, really cool in showing me that there's like a lot of other youth who are interested and there's a lot of opportunities that are even just within the UN system alone. Um, like I know that there's a lot of criticisms about like, you're in like bureaucratic and slow moving and things like that, which is like, sure, it's like true. Um, but I think that like, personally, I, I really wanted to work in that space because I think that multi lateral like negotiations and climate are like really important to making sure that like everyone adheres to these global standards um so Yungo was like outside of school was a big resource for me to get to know people um Koya definitely introduced me to a lot of people as well um which is something I only heard about through Yungo um so definitely would would vouch to get involved there um but yeah I think the last thing I'll say on this is that a lot of people like to sort of be the face of like a new climate movement um but I think that sometimes Although like the startup mentality is good for like grit and like, oh, like innovation and all these other things. Um, I think it's just as important to work within institutions, even though it doesn't seem as glamorous, right? Like 
maybe these new like like innovative like ideas are getting a lot of attention but also there are people uh, for example like I really want to work within Harvard systems like their dining services to make that more green and I think that that would make an equally big impact given the number of people that the dining services actually caters to on a day-to-day basis um, but I don't think that that sort of like work is like maybe as like applauded for in the like green community writ large um, and so I think that that's something I hope that will like change in the future um, since I think um, it's equally important and sometimes you sort of get this cannibalization of like climate startups where they're all like competing against each other um, but really you're trying to work for the same goal so it needs to be a lot more collaborative than I think hopefully it will be in the future. Yeah, it's so well said because like that that's kind of like one of the most important key things that I've learned in Koi, like collaboration, because like, you know, there was a talk talking about like, oh, how there's so many small organizations that are working towards the same goal, but then they're not collaborating with each other. And so like the impact is always going to be like limited. And so, yeah, like collaboration is kind of what I've learned the most. You're a sophomore student at Harvard. How do you how did you become so well versed in this topic and how did you kind of develop in that? like interest yeah I think a lot of it just stems from like a generalized climate anxiety that I think a lot of people who are at Koi face um in their everyday lives as well so I think that that really motivates me to do more um I'm also an effective altruist so I like to think about how we can do the most impact with the least amount of resources um and so my area of focus obviously is on climate policy um but I'm thinking about like what areas of climate policy are neglected by youth specifically right because I think youth are becoming increasingly like relevant stakeholder in a lot of these discussions and so what can I bring to the table that like maybe we haven't talked about as much already Um, and that way I can have a bigger impact um right because I think that there's a lot of like saturation about just like youth advocacy and like youth being at the table but now that we are somewhat represented at the table like what comes next right like I think we can all agree that like intergenerational equity and things like that are really good but from like a more technical lens, what, the, what does that actually mean? How do we calculate that? Like, how do we translate what we want into like policies and like speak that language of power, right? Um, and so I think that that was something that I considered as like I was trying to find my role. And I think that it's totally fine because um, the sustainability movement writ large is just like there's so many moving pieces, right? Or even within climate change, like at COP, the negotiations can be from everything from like loss and damages to like how does reparations work and like mitigation and adaptation and all these things, right? And so all of those are different sectors that we need to have people working on. Um, so obviously it doesn't have to be like neglected, but I just think that like uh, if we have that resource, then I should be using it to share with other people um, like all of these like amazing lessons that I've learned from my professors and like all these case studies that we've been doing in class are not something that like everyone has access to so and I think that could be like an area where I can bring a lot of value yeah great lovely to hear like were you part of like the negotiations like the blue zone and COP or were you just like green zone um I did go to both so the green zone I went to one day um and then for the the day of climate financing actually which is really cool since that was what my topic was about and then I was briefly in the blue zone through leaders club um, which sponsored me I'm not affiliated with them but they had extra passes and so I was able to briefly visit for like a day before my flight um so that was a really cool experience but I do think it's a lot more technical um and like less public facing yeah I think because like I'm also quite new to the space as well like I'm only just trying to figure out like my way of 
kind of advocating and stuff and so like when I joined Koi I only knew about Yango like a month before I entered in Koi and so I didn't I wasn't involved in like the working groups and stuff but then I realized how how involved they are in in COP which I think is a very big step to like intergenerational dialogue I, I heard someone say I forgot who but then I was like we're we're in this conference talking about our future but if you're not including the voices of the future then why are we talking about the future in the first place which I think is like super, super like it really hit the nail on the head so yeah that was just like a, a thing that I was thinking about so to end this I guess like the the last question is what's next for you what's your journey what's the next steps for you yeah, for sure. I think I want to get more involved in UN systems in the short term. So currently I'm involved in UNAUSA, which is the United Nations Association for the US. Um, and it's been really cool to learn about all the sustainable development goals, since I think that there's a lot of intersection. And I really like that as a framework for evaluating different social problems that we face. Um, and, and, and then again, in the short term, I'm also just trying to make sure that I get all my credits and graduate on time and things like that. Um, I think eventually I want to go to grad school because a lot of opportunities within like multilateral institutions do require a master's degree and like a lot more specialization um, and I also don't want my journey of like school to end in undergrad like I think it's important to keep learning throughout your life um, whether that be institutional or just like uh, from books and other resources um, so yeah I think it's it's hard for me to say I don't think I've pinpointed like one specific area of green like advocacy that I want to go into so the climate financing looks really promising but I'm also really interested in like food systems right and I don't think that I should have to choose um although like I definitely think concentrating on one issue will like make you more effective um but yeah those are my general ideas um but TBD as to how they actually come about yeah I think like a lot of younger students or like me who just graduated really hard to like kind of find a specialization path uh, for the future because yeah like like you said like multilateral uh, organizations they they do require like a master's degree and like some like specialization and so like I guess we're all in this like in this journey together where we're just like, like navigating and like kind of find which path would be most interesting or create the most impact for us. One last question any tips or advice for students who are trying to kind of also start this journey or like or are already in this journey and trying to like create more impact? Um, I think aside from what I said earlier about like collaboration and reaching out to professors, um, I think generally I would just say that there's a lot of like different opportunities that are going on within the space. Um, so like because there's just so many different types of green, like like different like divisions within the green se like sector of like advocacy, um, that. Like, I think I'm always conflicted about like whether to be like, oh yes, like say yes to all the opportunities, like get to know everyone, you don't know who you'll meet and stuff like that. Um, but also I think like being at Harvard has taught me that like sometimes you are inundated with like a lot of opportunities. Um, so like considering the opportunity cost about like, oh, like which ones did you actually take on? Especially if it's like an organizational role. I think that I'm, my personal philosophy is like, I like to say yes to a lot of like individual events or conferences uh, since these are like one time I don't think they're as commit like that's much as much commitment whereas like when I'm considering like internships or just like roles I play within different community organizations I want to be a lot more thoughtful about how much of a role I can actually give um, and like how much effort I can give how much impact I can make um so I would sort of use that framework as like a differentiator um because I do think that both pieces of advice like say yes to everything and like oh like think about all the other options like 
are important. Um, so that's how I sort of like navigate between the two. Thank you so much, Angela, for sharing all your insights. And thank you to Sustainable listeners for tuning in this week with us. We would love to hear from you about the episode, so let us know your questions and comments by messaging us on Instagram at sustainapod underscore G-I-H or email us at sustainapod at gmail.com.